Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 this morning. We're walking through our um, study of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And so, um, I, I guess the, the best way, it's a hard passage, I'll tell you, I'll give you a couple of quotes about people that, that talked about this passage in a minute, and then I'll, I'll read it for you in a minute. But I, I want to try to set it up the best way I can. And I, I guess one of the ways I'd say it is, is that this passage in some ways is what I would call a last gasp, okay? Um, so what Paul's been doing is he's been giving um, the bad news of, of everybody's situation, if you're part of humanity, and that includes all of us, um, the, the bad news about your situation um, as you came into humanity. And, and he's doing that to highlight just how good the good news of the gospel is. And so he's going to get to this, this good news um, here in chapter 3, um, but, but he's got to deal with sort of this, this last gasp objection that the Jews are going to make um, to Paul. And, and the way I'd say it, so, so the truth, nobody wants to know just how bad the bad news is. You know, by nature, um, we don't want to come to terms with the helplessness that we're in. So, I'm going to tell you about a last gasp moment in my life. But I need us to commit that we'll keep this our secret, okay? Um, because, so, so I, I'll tell you about it, it was, um, it was a time in our marriage. So Leslie and I, we'd been married for about six years. Um, we're about to begin our 25th year of marriage. Um, that's owing all to her. Um, so, so, so six years of marriage, and uh, at the time we have two children under four years old. I was in seminary, um, finishing up my third year, about to begin uh, my fourth year. And I guess, so by backstory, one of the things I should tell you is, so Leslie and I, we met in graduate school. So, I mean, so we, we kind of grew up around each other, but we didn't really meet till graduate school. And um, we were both working on a master's degree in marriage and family therapy, okay? So she graduated, she began to work as a journalist, and, and then ultimately doing a writing and freelance writing. But I began work after that as a counselor, and then continued on staff uh, with Young Life. So all that's backstory. All right, so six years of marriage, um, there we are, and our marriage was struggling. So I don't know, pr probably none of you have ever had struggling in your marriage, but we were, and there was a lot going on in our life, okay? So, I mean, I wasn't sleeping enough, I was working too much, uh, trying to keep up with school. Leslie was riding from home and taking care of two little kids that seemed to be sick all, you know, every other week. And so we were overstretched. And, and what happened is the struggles of our marriage that really had been there all along, um, they, they began to come to the surface. And if you're married, you, you know what I'm talking about. So you, pride and hurt and um, expectations and disappointments, you know, it's all a part of marriage. Well, here's, here's the thing, though, and I, I say this with a, um, not, a, not a little amount of shame. Um, I was pretty convinced at the time that the problems in our marriage were mostly Leslie's problems, okay? 
And, and, and I had thought about it. I mean, I, you know, I'd had a master's degree, marriage and family therapy. Uh, not to mention I'm almost done with seminary. You know, I was, was a theological master as well. So I was pretty sure I knew how this thing, what the problem was. So we went to breakfast, and it was there, you know, we decided, look, we have to do something or this thing isn't going to work. And um, so we made an appointment with a marriage counselor that um, the pastor at our, at our church had recommended. Now, let me, let me tell you how the first uh, session went, okay? So we introduced ourselves, and we made small talk, and, you know, it was very nice, and he, the guy was, was great. And, and so, but then I began to, to tell him um, that we were here for Leslie. And, it, and that, you know, so I, and I was almost finished with seminary, and on top of that, I had a marriage and family therapy training and experience. And so I was there. I mean, I, I was happy to help him. <laughs> in any way I could. It was my last gasp, you know? I mean, clinging to the idea uh, that there wasn't anything wrong with me, especially when it came to my marriage. I mean, after all, I knew better, right? I mean, I had, I had training. I was as equipped as anyone could be for marriage. And so we spent the next nine months talking about me. Uh, <laughs> as it turns out, I was the problem in our marriage, uh, and it was so hard to come to terms with. I was, I was grasping for my own justification to the very end. And what I was doing was I was clinging to my, my training and my experience, you know, my, my theology, all of it. I was, I was clinging to it to try to keep me safe from the judgment that I was terrible at marriage. And I needed help. But I couldn't get help until I came to the end of myself. I had to let go of what I was clinging to, you know, to, 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 to save what I was clinging to to save me from the truth. And, and I needed help, and I couldn't help myself in counseling. And I'll tell you, just as an aside, it was the best thing we ever did. And I don't know where we'd be if, if we hadn't done that work together and, you know, if Leslie hadn't been so gracious um, to me. But, but I say all that to say, I hope that helps you understand this is what's going on in this passage. So what I was doing at a horizontal level in my relationship with Leslie, um, th this is what the Jews were doing on a vertical uh, plane with their relationship with God. Um, they were, um, you know, yes, they were Jewish Yes, they had the law. Yes, they were God's people. But what Paul's trying to help them understand is that isn't going to keep them from being judged. And, and so he's got to address this last gasp, if you will, the, the, the last clinging to some hope of their privilege, their Jewish heritage, you know, some hope that that's going to save them from the judgment. 
So Paul, he, he started out, if you've been with us, um, or even if you haven't, I can catch you up really quick. You, if you did first Sunday here, you want to get in on the Roman study, you're not that far behind. He begins by telling the Romans, I can't wait to get to you, I want to preach the gospel, because the gospel's the power of God for salvation for everybody. And it's just to the Jew first, and then, then to, the, to the Greek, to the, to the Gentile, and, 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 and so he can't wait to get there because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Everything you need to stand before God is revealed. It's, it can be received. And so, but, but to show how good the good news is, he's, he's got to um, help us come to terms with how bad things are, how bad we, we really are. And so he begins at the end of, of chapter 1 with, with what we might call the pagans, but really they were people that thought they were wise in their own eyes. You know what I mean? So, so they thought their own wisdom. You know what I mean? These were Greeks, of Plato and Aristotle, Socrates. I mean, they were wise in their own eyes. And Paul says, man, your wisdom's foolishness. Don't you know? I mean, you've exchanged the one true God. You've suppressed the truth about him. You've made your own idols. You're, you're foolish. And God's handed you over. So then he's got to turn, and he, at the beginning of chapter 2, he, he talks about those who think of themselves as, you know, sort of morally superior, that, that always take a high ground. That, you know, I mean, they, they know what good is. They know what right is. Um, they also are able to judge what wrong is. But unfortunately, they're only able to judge the wrong in other people and not able to see it in themselves. So Paul has to kind of undo them. And then he turns to those that are the super religious, you know, I mean, the, 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 the Jews, the ones who had the law, the ones um, that knew all that, and he, he, they're counting on their religion, they're counting on their Jewish heritage to save them. And Paul says, hey, listen, that's not going to be able to save you from judgment. Now, listen, so if this helps, all of this is about, um, not about how you're saved, but it's about how everybody's going to be judged. Everybody's going to be judged, and everyone will be found guilty. And the Jews were God's people, and they did all of the God's people stuff, and they thought, surely that doesn't mean that we're going to be judged like everybody else. And Paul says, yes, it does mean you're going to be judged. And so what they want to know is then what's so special about being God's people? I mean, does that even mean anything? Paul, are you saying that, that being chosen by God, being one of God's people, that that doesn't mean that it has no value? And so Paul's going to answer, oh, yes, it does have great value. It does have great advantage. Just not like you think it does. So, I'm going to read chapter 3. I'm going to read the first eight verses, and then we'll stop there and talk about it. Here's, here's the way Paul says it. So, imagine this. It's what's called um, a diatribe, which, which means Paul is um, incommunicating, having both sides of the conversation. He's, he's answering the objections, okay? Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? <laughs> Much in every way. 
To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it's written in, as it's written in Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for, for then how could God judge the world? But, but if through my lie God's truth abounds in his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And, and why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. Well, um, let me give you two quotes about this passage that I came across this week. There's one guy named Douglas Moo who's a commentator, wrote a commentary on Romans. It's a great commentary, pretty big, thick commentary. But he says this, this paragraph, Romans 3, 1 through 8, is one of the most difficult perhaps in the epistle, which means it's one of the most difficult in the Bible. Here's what John Piper said. My brain almost broke trying to understand the complexity of that paragraph. All right. So, I, I offer those um, so that you might offer me in return some grace in this very difficult passage. All right. So, what Paul's doing is he is um, going to ask a series of questions that are related to what the natural objections would have been from the Jews, okay? So he's just said at the end of chapter 2, um, you know, what being a Jew really is, in verse 29 of chapter 2, he said, but being a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, from God. But so he's saying, listen, you, just, just because you've been circumcised doesn't mean you're really circumcised. It's a matter of the heart is what he's been trying to say. So, then what advantage has the Jew? What, 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 what's the value of circumcision? What, what, what advantage, and this word advantage, like what, what over and above do we get for being Jews? Because it sounds like, Paul, that you're saying there is no advantage. And, and what's the profit, the, the value of circumcision? Because it sounds like you're saying circumcision doesn't mean anything. So, in verse 2, Paul answers the objection. He says, well, much in every way. To, he begins a case for the advantages in, 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 you know, so for the first thing, the first thing I'm going to say is much in every way, and, and, and for the first, to begin with, you, you were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, here's one of the problems of the passage. He says, firstly, or chiefly, or to begin with. But he only lists one thing. He, it's like he forgets to come back to the rest of them. All right? So, so let me just show you real quick. So, so here he says, firstly, it's, it's because you've been entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, I think in Paul's mind, what he knows is he's going to address all of this later in Romans. But 
you know, he, he sort of starts this, he needs to answer it, but, but he's going to leave the rest of what he's going to say. So, so um, I'm going to turn over to Romans chapter 9 just for a minute so you can hear what I think is the rest of what Paul was going to say or knew that he was going to say about the Jews. At the beginning of nine, chapter 9, verse 1, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And then he says this. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You know what he's talking about there? He's talking about the Jewish people. He's talking about his fellow Jews. So, so we might read, you know, the end of chapter 2. We might read the beginning of, of chapter 3, and we think, well, Paul, he's mad at his people. He's mad at the Jews. You know, but, but here's this. He's saying, listen, if I could, man, I'd, I'd, I'd take their curse. I'd give up my salvation that they would be saved. And he says this, the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God all, um, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What advantage is? Um, is it to being um, a Jew? What, what advantage is the circumcision? Well, much in every way, but, but to begin with, you, you've been given, you've been entrusted with the oracles of God. And now the question, this much in every way, this advantage, there is value. The question is, what is the advantage? What is the value? What, what kind of advantage and value do they have? Well, he's challenged their understanding about the, what the value would have been, but he's clear. So you've misjudged the value, but there is value. There's much value. You ever heard of the Peter Parker principle, um, who, also known as Spider-Man, you know? His, his um, uncle, with great power, comes what? great responsibility. So the Jews had been given a great power, a great privilege that came with a great responsibility that they did not live up to. The, the law increased the, the Jewish responsibility. I mean, the, the, the God's Word came to them that, that God revealed who He was in words to them. It highlighted their inability to live up to the very standards of God that were entrusted to them in the oracles of God. And so they were entrusted with the oracles of God, which means that they were given, it was given to them for the purpose of delivery. So when you're entrusted with, somebody, with something, you're given something in good faith. That's, in fact, that's what the word entrusted is. It's the word faith. You've become a steward of it. 
If you've been entrusted with something, you've been entrusted with something for someone or for someones. They they weren't a, a, a depository so much as they were deliverers of the message. And so, Paul's argument is their advantage, the, the covenantal sign of circumcision, all that's wrapped up into they were given, they were entrusted with the very oracles of God, the very utterance of God, God speaking. They were entrusted with it, the living words of God. With Isaiah, as Isaiah would say in Isaiah 55, the, the very rain from heaven sent to water the earth. They were entrusted with it. Now, what Paul's going to do is he's going to move from, okay, this is the advantage, and he's going to argue for the faithfulness and the righteousness of God by showing the unfaithfulness of the Jews and the unrighteousness of the Jews. But how their unfaithfulness and their unrighteousness doesn't make God less faithful, doesn't make God less righteous. Okay, so here's how it goes. I'm picking up in verse 3. Paul is now um, giving another objection. So, so what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So, so what if some are unfaithful? Well, um, God's faithfulness, in spite of Israel's unbelief or unfaithfulness. That subject, Paul will address in Romans 9 through 11 in in earnest, in full. But ultimately, here's what Paul's answer is going to be. That where Israel, the, the Jewish people, have been unfaithful, Jesus has been faithful. And thus, he has fulfilled the covenant on their behalf. And his faithfulness is theirs if they only believe. So so God is, as Paul will say in a few verses, he's both the just, the one who is just, and he's the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Maybe another way to say it this way, the, the covenant is. That they were in an unconditional covenant with God that had come through Abraham. Now, here's what God had promised Abraham. That there was going to be a seed that was to come. There was going to be one to come. It's picking up off of the Genesis 3.15 that there's going to be... So God had said, listen, the, the, the earth fell into, into sin and... Um, and it affected every single human being that has ever lived and will ever live. But God has a rescue plan, a way to rescue us. In His covenant with Abraham, one of the points of the covenant was the seed, the, the one who's going to be the rescuer is going to come through you. And Jesus is that promised seed. Now, they were also, at the time, they were still in this covenant of, of Sinai where, where God had given them the law, but it was a conditional covenant. You, you, you do this, you'll be blessed. If you don't do this, you'll be cursed. And what, what he's saying, listen, is Jesus perfectly fulfilled that covenant too? He kept it perfectly. And he's just saying, all that's going to count for you. But it only counts for you 
if you believe, not if you just keep trying harder. Jesus is the promised Messiah through whom the Jews will be saved. It's not their ethnic Jewishness that ends up being their ultimate advantage. It's the perfect Jewishness of Jesus that has demonstrated the faithfulness of God and fulfilled the covenant obligations of the Jews. When God made that covenant with Abraham, He put Abraham to sleep, and then literally He cuts the covenant by Himself, which means He assumes both halves of the covenant. On the one hand, as God seated in heaven, He upholds and with His right hand is justice, His mercy, His righteousness. And the Son of God, who came as man, comes now and fulfills the other side of the covenant. God is both just and the justifier. What's your advantage? Jesus is Jewish. The Son of God, the, the line of, of the divine Son of God is who you are. God's kept both halves. Being Jewish is at the very heart of trusting God for, own, for what only He can do and what only He can provide. Life from death. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. In fact, Paul is going to argue um, that the life of Abraham when he talks to us about faith and, and what he's going to say, um, what's interesting is in the Old Testament. Now, listen, I realize, um, look, like I don't have to be a rocket scientist to know. I've stepped way off into nerdville here. And you're like, I have covenant circumstances, a lot of C words I don't understand, you know. But, but, but Paul wants them to know something. He says, listen, you, you have, you've been counting on your ability to do the law, to do the right thing, your ability to look good enough before God that at the end of the day, God wouldn't judge you like everybody else out there. And Paul says, listen, he's going to argue, listen, Abraham, here's what saved Abraham. He believed God. And then what he's going to imply is that, listen, Moses, the very one whom the law came to, Moses, Moses, Moses didn't even get to go into the promised land. And you know why he doesn't get to go into the promised land? Numbers chapter 20. It's not because, some of you say, well, it's because he struck the rock. Well, that was the occasion. But what God said is, he forfeited getting to go into the promised land because he did not believe. You believe, it's counted to you as righteousness. You don't believe, you're just like Moses. You, you, you'll be judged. You, you, you won't make it to the promised land and ultimately the eternal promised land. What he's telling them. 
those entrusted with the oracles of God failed to live up to it. So in one sense, think about it this way, the oracles of God became flesh and dwelt among us and perfectly fulfilled themselves. How do the oracles of God get fulfilled perfectly? Well, the oracles of God, John will tell us, became flesh and dwelt among us and perfectly did what none of us can do and then died for us for all that we've done. And He became like us so we can become like Him. But in their rejecting of Jesus, they're rejecting the very seed that was promised at the heart of the covenant. If you reject the very heart of the covenant, you're counted out of the covenant. Because the whole covenant is dependent upon the seed that was to come, the one who was to come. So what they're saying is, so, so listen, if, if we're unfaithful, does that mean God's not faithful to what it is that he promised? And he says, no, by no means is that, is that the case. God's been faithful. He's faithful to both sides of this deal. And so he says, let, if, let God be true, though every single person that's ever uttered is a liar, God is still true. And then what he does is he quotes from Psalm 51, which is David's confession after Bathsheba, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. What, what's happening is David is acknowledging that he's sinned and that he's been unfaithful and that his sin and unfaithfulness has chiefly been, at the end of the day, that's been towards God. And what David received from God was just. Also, what he received was mercy. David's sin and the death of his child, the death of that son, did not negate the covenant, the promise of an everlasting kingdom, a son of David that would rule forever. Let me say it this way. Is it beneficial to be born into the family of faith? Did your parents went to church and your grandparents went to church and your great-grandparents? Is that beneficial? Yes. And it's good if you practice the, the things of the church. It's good that you would read the Bible. It's good that you would learn the faith. It's good that you would be baptized. It, it's good that you would do all of these things. But if people who are born into this and have done all the practices... But they end up at the end of the day being found unfaithful. Does that mean God wasn't faithful to them? Not at all. What he's saying is that every person, every person stands and falls on their own. You cannot inherit faith. You must believe. And God is the righteous judge and His judgments deal with matters of the heart not all the mechanical actions that you go through. Now, let me show you something that is absurd, okay? L look at verse um, 5 
And, and let me read all these again. So now he picks up the objector again. But if, you're unrighte- but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? So you talk about a last gasp. Here we go. Wait a minute, Paul. Let me see if I got you right. We're, so if we're unrighteous, our unrighteousness, which means, you know, us, us prove to be, that, that makes God look all the more righteous? Is that what you're saying? Hmm. That, 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 then if that's the case, didn't we just do God a favor? Didn't in our unrighteousness we make God look more righteous? I mean, isn't that, so, I mean, really what you're saying, Paul, if I hear you say, what you're saying is we, we actually did a good thing in our bad thing? So why is God mad at us if we made him look so righteous? Okay, that's absurdity. So it's almost like you're talking with your 15-year-old that has no license but has wrecked your car. And then their argument is, well, see, here's what I did. I proved. I mean, I, I'm part of the proof that you really ought to be 16 to, to drive. So what are you so mad at? Paul says, I'm speaking in human ways because um, that's what you sound like. Verse 6, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? Now, absurdity number 2, verse 7, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And, and why, do, why not do evil that good may come? And Paul says, because I know you're asking that, because that's what slanderous people have been saying that I said. And that line of thinking, well, your condemnation will be just, after all. Here's ultimately what he's saying. But Paul, when he begins to talk about grace, and we'll pick this up, and then, man, when we start talking about grace, we're not going to quit talking about grace in Romans. But he says, listen, when you start talking about grace, the truth is, is as scandalous as you think it is, as, as, as offensive as you think it is that I have told you there is nothing you can do to keep from being judged, that every single one of you are guilty, even you who are Jews, you're guilty. And being a part of, the, of a Jewish heritage, being one of God's elect people doesn't keep you from standing in judgment before God. And as offensive as that is, is nothing compared to the scandalous offense of grace. And it's been well said, I think, that you know you're talking about grace rightly when a few people will stand up and say, well, wait a minute, are you saying that where sin abounds, grace abounds, so I should sin more? And Paul will answer that, by no means, which in the Greek means you're an idiot. <laughs> He's addressing the absurdity of their logic. 
If the disobedient Jews help bring the Gentiles to faith, how does God consider their disobedience bad? But, well, wouldn't it be good if we just kept on sinning? I, I went to a Christian college, um, w- which meant we, we had a student body that was full of boring testimonies. Okay? Like, like everybody wanted a, you know, like a, some radical testimony, you know, but here's how they mostly went. Yet my life, it's boring growing up watching Little House on the Prairie, listening to Adventures in Odyssey. So it'd be like saying, and since that was it, I think I'll go get hooked on drugs and I'll live in the streets. And then after that, I'll dedicate my life to Jesus, become a pastor, so I'll have a real testimony. And that's craziness. There's an old preacher named Ironside, Henry A. Ironside. He says, how hard it is for the natural man or natural woman to give up all pretension to righteousness and to fall down in the dust of self-judgment and repentance before God, only to find that it is there in that very place where grace can meet him. You have to give up your last gasp. You have to let go of all that you're grasping for. And Paul wants him to know that because if they don't, they'll never They'll never understand. They'll never be in a place. They'll never be able to receive by faith the grace that's to come. Chuck Swindoll offers a bit of application on this passage, so I'm going to borrow this and share it with you. He says, because grace profoundly affects how we relate to God, it also changes how we think and how we live. So he's going to give three examples. What, what, how does it change what we think about our possessions? How does it change our actions? How does it change how we regard ourselves? And think about this. Religion is what you're clinging to to save you from being judged. Religion says, keep it. Be proud of it. It's your reward for good behavior. Grace says, share it. Be grateful for it. It's God's to steward wisely. How do you view your stuff. Keep it. You're proud of it. It's your reward. Or it's given to you by God to be shared, to be stewarded wisely. How about your actions? Religion, that which you're clinging to to save you. Continually strive to earn God's favor because enough, enough is never quite enough. Or do you live in a state of grace that says you already have God's favor? Because His grace is sufficient. How about how you regard yourself? Here you go. Are you clinging to this? I'm a good person because of what I've accomplished. Just look at me. Or by grace, are you able to say, I am a sinner who has been given the righteousness of God? Look at Christ. As you examine your life, your possessions, 
your actions, how you regard yourself, your marriage, whatever it is. What voice do you hear in your head? Do you answer the daily call of religion, the daily call of grasping for that which keeps you from being judged who you really are? Or do you accept the invitation of God and rest daily in His grace? I would say receiving God's grace is the most unnatural choice you'll ever make because it means we must admit that we are helpless and we desperately need His supernatural intervention. And we need it every day. What voice do you hear? Where is it that you go for your last gasp?